You can't see this, of course, but this is the Bible I ordinarily preach from. The part you can't see is on the inside. I have notes. You can't see those either, but I'm going to tell you what those notes are. There are two lists on the inside cover of my Bible. The first list is entitled First Sermons. For whatever reason, whenever I come across a passage in my daily reading where I think that would make a great first sermon to a congregation, it would set the tone, the vibe from a ministry in that church, I put it on that list. The second list is called the mission of God. In other words, when I find a passage in the Bible, I think this really captures well what God intends for the church to do in the world, I put it on that list. It has taken me 23 years and four pastorates to come to the point where I see the intersection between the two. And today, I want to talk to you about the intersection of those two from this section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 into chapter 7. It is, in a word, what I'm describing, open-heartedness. That is, to make it a little bit more full, what is necessary for effective gospel ministry as pastors is an open-heartedness in us first and then in our congregations. I know all of you might not be preparing for gospel ministry. If you are not, this will also speak to you. If you are, it is directed primarily toward you. And there are three things that I want to say about open-heartedness this morning. The first is the essence of open-hearted ministry. The essence of open-hearted ministry. By essence, I mean, of course, what is essential? What is it all about? When I say open-hearted, what does the Apostle Paul mean? And in order for you to understand that, I have the joy of walking with you through a little bit of the history of the Church of Corinth and the Apostle Paul. There's a lot that could be said about this church. It's perhaps one of the most well-known churches in the New Testament, primarily because of its trouble. But I want to fill you in on the interaction between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church. He had history with this church. Like when you have history with a next-door neighbor whose dog keeps barking all night and it's not easy. That kind of history. It had gone on for a number of years and a number of letters to the Corinthians. The first one is recorded, or rather follows, Paul's first visit in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. He begins by speaking in a synagogue but ends up preaching the gospel to the Gentiles the believing Gentiles who were basically next door to the synagogue, and that version of sheep stealing did not go over well in the synagogue. That was not a welcomed occasion. In fact, a riot erupts. Paul then leaves for Ephesus, and things only get worse in Corinth while he is gone. He wrote two, we believe, follow-up letters. Then he visited again and was viciously attacked, and then he wrote them a third letter begging them to change. And Titus took that letter to them and reported back to the Apostle Paul how they responded. And surprise, they responded with repentance, at least a measure of that. And that leads Paul to write 2 Corinthians with all the ups and downs that are found in this book. But especially, I think it's fair to say, the downs. Now, I'm telling you all of this so that you know there's a history here between the Corinthians and Paul. It's like the feeling you get when you go to work if some of you work as well as uh, studying at a seminary, you go to work tomorrow morning and you know that there's a history with a coworker you don't get along with. It's like that kind of history. Or when you belong to a church and there are problems or tensions and you walk through the front door and you kind of steal yourself for what's going to happen. That, I believe, captures the sense of Paul's interaction with these Corinthians. And in the middle of all this, and this is why I'm telling you the history, 
Paul tells them in this section of scripture that his ministry to them is open-hearted. Now, I'm telling you that history again to emphasize to you how exceptional that is. Verse 11 says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open to you, our heart is enlarged. Different versions have, our heart is open to you. You can see that again near the end of the section that I read for you in verse 2. The King James says, receive us. Other versions more expansively say, enlarge your heart toward us. The beginning of this passage and then the end of this passage both have this sense of open your heart to us. Be open-hearted. I'll be open-hearted to you and you return by being open-hearted to me. There are three things I want to tell you about this open-heartedness that belong to the essence of this kind of ministry. The first is found in verse 11 where Paul tells the Corinthians that they should have, in addition to an open heart, an open mouth. He says in verse 11, Our mouth is open to you and our heart is enlarged. At the beginning of any open-hearted relationship in the church is what I would describe as an open mouth. Open here means available. It means access is possible. An open mountain pass gives you access to what is on the other side. An open mouth is one in which you hear what is found in the heart, the other person's cares and concerns, their love. We might describe this also simply as vulnerability. There's vulnerability in what Paul is commending to the Corinthians. And Paul says this open heart relationship requires speaking freely. That is being open-hearted in the way we speak. It's not the same thing as saying whatever you think. Maybe you're someone who struggles with just saying whatever you think. I'm not commending that to you. Rather, this open mouth that comes from an open heart means that we have thought carefully about what we're going to say and we choose our words wisely, but we are not hindered by a sense of protection, of wanting to make sure that there is no danger that results. It might be like this. I might say things to my children or to my wife or to my church members that are difficult things. They may even be offensive, not because I mean to be offensive, but because these things hurt because they're true. Or someone might come to me and say something that's difficult. And it's not untrue or unwise. It's just difficult for me to hear. But in order for us to have an open-hearted relationship, there has to be the ability to communicate freely. That's part of what it means to be part of an open-hearted church. That speak, people feel as though they can speak freely to each other. Both words of encouragement, words of commendation, but also words that are difficult and words that are challenging. That's the first part. First essence of an open-hearted ministry is an open mouth. The second comes in verse 13. But open-heartedness must go both ways. You see that in verse 13 where Paul commends that they do the same for him as he is doing for them. He commends them to be open-hearted. They were, to use the rather graphic language of the King James Version, emotionally constricted, stopped up in their emotional bowels. It's like their love could not make it through the tract of their emotions. It's not easy to be open-hearted. It's really not. 
There are times when we will irritate each other. Certainly, there was a long history between the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. But in spite of that history, Paul does not close off his heart to them. Instead, his difficulty leads him to redouble his efforts to be open with them. Murphy O'Connor has written about this passage, ministry has necessarily two facets, the activity of the apostle and the receptivity of the community. You cannot have one without the other and the church be healthy and strong. It is one thing for a pastor who does, does, does. It is quite another to be a pastor who does in a congregation who willingly receives the open-heartedness of his ministry. To be doing without that reception is frustrating, trying, and ultimately deliberating, dehabilitating rather. Unless it sounds like that's something that is outside of a pastor's control, I want to commend to you the example of the Apostle Paul this morning. Paul writing these words to the Corinthians is giving them an example, not only in word, but also in his activity with them, his interaction with them, that he intends to lead them into open-heartedness. He not only commends it to them, he has given them an example, and he has said to them, as I have done to you, you now do to me. And follow the example that I've given. Speak freely, speak in love, but be open-hearted. That's the second thing that belongs to the essence of an open-hearted ministry. The third is this. There must also be love. The third part of an open-hearted ministry is this vulnerability that is rooted in love, the love that we have for each other. Paul calls these Corinthians his children. That is a term of affection. Paul does this in other places in the Bible as well. It's not unique to this passage. But in this passage, it really jumps out because of that history. You may want to call other people a whole variety of things that you have conflict with, but close friend, brother, child is probably not one of them, unless you mean child in a condescending fashion. That's a term of endearment. If you look at chapter 5, verse 20 in this book, you will see that Paul connects his ministry with that of Jesus himself. If Jesus can love you, Paul means to say, I can love you too, and I can be open-hearted with you. If I can paraphrase chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, God is appealing to you to be reconciled to himself, and he is doing so because he loves you so deeply. Therefore, receive that wonderful news about the love of God for you. If God could love the Corinthians, Paul says, I can also love you, and I would ask you to love me in return. So what is the essence of this open-heartedness in ministry? It is to develop an honest, reciprocal, and loving posture toward your fellow Christians. That's, I believe, what Paul means to say in the early part of this passage. That is the essence of an open-hearted ministry. The development of that posture provides, should I put this way, the enzyme for effective gospel ministry where people come to faith and then they grow in Christ-likeness as they're part of the body. So that's the first thing I want you to hear, the essence of open-hearted ministry. The second is this, the threat to an open-hearted ministry. There is certainly a threat to open-heartedness. 
As you seek to develop this culture of open-heartedness someday, if you're called to pastoral ministry and there you are in the church, it won't take you very long to realize this is not an easy or natural thing. Or to put it differently, if you think of the churches that you belong to, why doesn't every church have this open-heartedness, this vulnerability where people speak freely in love, but also about difficult things? Why doesn't that happen? What leads to superficial life in the church? Why? In verses 14 through the beginning of verse 16 in this passage, you'll notice a series of rhetorical questions. These are questions that are indeed rhetorical. There's an obvious answer to each one. There is no partnership. There is no fellowship. There is no accord. There is no portion. There is no agreement between this and that. And there is none because in verse 16 we read, we are the temple of the living God. And there can be no fellowship between that which is not belonging to God and this which belongs to God. There can be no closeness between them. There is a separation that exists. To put it a little differently, what Paul is saying is that our identity as the church is purely and solely that of God himself. As a temple in the Old Testament was the place of God's residence, in the New Testament the church is the place where God dwells, and we must belong truly and fully to no one else but to God himself. Now that would have sounded, you might not know, very strange to the Corinthian ears. Because they lived in a truly pluralistic society where there were different gods for different places of life. And so what Paul is saying would have sounded, frankly, very strange, almost weird to them. The idea that there is one God who deserves our worship, who would have absolute entire claim over the totality of our lives. That would have seemed very, very strange in their context, but that's exactly the point that Paul is making. And Paul even uses a series of Old Testament quotes to make this point, that the Israelites and now us as the New Testament church are set aside to God. You belong to him, friends, and to him alone. Exodus 19 verse 5 says, And you shall be my treasured possessions, possession among all peoples. You belong to God. Now, of course, you're wondering, aren't you? What does that have to do with open-hearted ministry? that we belong exclusively to God, what does that have to do with this vulnerability and ministry that I'm commending to you? In order to understand the connection, let me explain a little paradox to you, one that I've already introduced by asking you to think about your own church. The paradox that we struggle with often as Christians is that on the one hand, we want to be known and to know others fully. If you are married... If you are married, a lot of the struggle that we experience in marriage is over the desire to be fully and truly known and feeling as though that either isn't happening or it's dangerous to let that happen. And outside of marriage and relationships with others, even in the church, we've experienced that danger over and over. We've tried, it hasn't worked, and now we've become very closely guarded. We've been hurt and we've been hurt badly. Is that true for you? that you've been hurt by someone that you've become close to within the church, 
Maybe it was a parent you grew up in the church, and it was a parent who sharply criticized you about all the reasons why you're less than you should be. Maybe it was a friend you opened your heart to about your struggle with jealousy or lust or whatever. And next thing you know, your whole friend group is aware of this. Or maybe you've just seen enough of the hurt that people cause. You've decided it's not worth the risk. <laughs> you know what works a lot better? Show up at church, smile, say fine, sing the right songs, listen to the sermon. When you leave, say again, fine, and go home. No worry about having to be hurt. It reminds me about a story <laughs> of an older woman who lived in a small Iowa town. She was 70-some years of age during one Bible study, small group Bible study in which they were trying to develop what I would describe as open-hearted ministry, she shared with the ladies that many, many years ago, she had had an affair. And she had never told anyone about it, including her husband, who was now deceased. She was unburdening her heart. And I remember her saying, I sure learned from that one, because by the time that everyone else got to their homes, the whole little town knew about my affair. <laughs> Maybe you've experienced something like that, and it leads you to think, I'm not being open-hearted. That's crazy. That will never work. So how in the world could I commend that to you this morning, especially, as I said, if I'm speaking to you as a future pastor in the church of Jesus Christ? Isn't that a foolish thing to do, knowing the state of the hearts of those around us? There is only one way alone that you will dare to have this open-heartedness. And that is, if you believe what Paul says in the series of rhetorical questions, that you truly and fully belong to God and God alone. And not only do you belong to him, he has the ability to protect and care for you. I'm not commending foolishness. That no matter what happens to you, just keep plugging ahead. People hurt you like, it doesn't hurt. I can do it. No, there are times where it's too much, and maybe you're just not in the right place. But what I'm commending to you is the ability to lead the congregation of Jesus Christ into this, because as a pastor, you know first and foremost that you belong to the God who said to the Israelites, you are mine, I selected you out of the entirety of the human race, and you belong in Jesus Christ to his son to such a degree that the words of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3 are yours. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You will be challenged, my friend, if you become a pastor that is a leader in the church who's willing to risk being hurt. I can guarantee you this morning, you will be hurt. Your challenge at that point is whether to shirk back and say, well, in that case, you're going to get good sermons, but don't expect to know my heart. I will not be vulnerable to you. Why would I do that? That's a foolish endeavor. Again, I say to you, be careful in the way that you hear my words. I'm not calling you to foolishness, but I am talk calling you to leadership. And that is to be open-hearted when others are not because you trust that Jesus is able to take care of you. Again, let me say it for the third time because I am Ventilian. Do not be foolish about this. Do not be foolish. 
I'm not asking you to throw caution to the wind, but God will call you, Lord willing, to go to a congregation where they are waiting for you to be open-hearted with them, that they may also be with you, and gospel ministry can flourish. Do not simply show up and preach sermons, but embody a trust in our Savior Jesus that enables you to lead others to be open-hearted. Can I stress this a little bit more? Is that okay? I want to tell you why it's so important. It always has been important, but it's especially important now. It does not take some kind of genius cultural investigation to figure out that we live in a world that is increasingly isolated. When my grandfather lived, it was not unusual in the small town for the neighbors to come over on the, uh, in the evening and sit on the front porch and talk. When my father lived in a small town, it wasn't unusual to walk up and down the streets of that town and greet all the neighbors who lived there. You knew them by name. You knew something about them. There was a sort of closeness in the community. That is not true anymore. I would be surprised if there wasn't people here who felt like I'm part of a seminary community and yet I am all by myself. There are a lot of cultural reasons for that. But I want to tell you what God calls a church to be is countercultural. To be a place in which genuine relationship to discipleship can form, even in a world that finds that incredibly difficult. Yesterday, a friend who's also a pastor called me on the phone. That's not unusual. We talk a couple of times a week at least. He's planning a church in the greater Grand Rapids area, and as part of that work, he holds a Bible study for a group of young men that he coaches on a football team. And I talked to him about a year ago, and he was so frustrated. He would have weekly Bible studies with these young men, and he said, I don't see much fruit to my work. Every week I show up, I tell them about some portion of Jesus. Last year, he worked in the Gospel of John. Forty young men would show up, listen to him talk about the Bible. He would meet with them one-on-one outside of his Bible study, talk to them about all kinds of things, but none of them confessed Christ at the end of the year. None of them ever came to a single worship service. And he was discouraged. And then he called yesterday, and he said, this past week, two of those young men have come to me in my office to confess very deep sins and to say, you've told us there's hope in Jesus. Is there really? You know, twice in the Gospels, there's a story about the lost sheep that one goes, the shepherd goes to find. You remember what it says at the end of those passages? Do you remember? And it says, the angels in heaven rejoice over one lost sinner who's found. So yesterday on the phone, my friend and I got to rejoice over lost sinners who've been found. You know what made that possible? It's the work of the Spirit, of course. But not only on those young men, but also in my friend who was open-hearted with them for a long period of time. How can you endure in ministry? How can you be open-hearted? How can you avoid this threat to open-hearted ministry only if you are inoculated against the threat of open-heartedness by knowing that you belong to your Savior, Jesus Christ? That's the second thing I want you to hear. First, the essence of open-heartedness. Second, the threat against open-heartedness. And now third, very briefly, endurance in open-hearted ministry. One day... A couple of years ago, before I came to this pastorate, I worked at a different seminary, which shall not be named, since I'm here now. 
But at that seminary, one day, one of the better students came into my office with a question. I considered him better not because he got the best grades. He got good grades. But it wasn't because he was the most brilliant theologically, but because in my judgment, he was deeply thoughtful. He was really careful in the way that he thought about himself and those around him. And his question to me was this, how do I know when it's time to leave a church? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. You aren't even ordained and already you're thinking about leaving a church. Why would you think about that? So that was my question to him. Why are you thinking about that? He said, because I've been reading in the Bible and the passage he pointed to was the one that comes in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Especially this phrase. If you still have your Bibles open, I'll read it for you. It says in verse 3, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye in our hearts to die and to live with you. That comes after verse 2, which says receive us. The ESV in translating the receive us there makes a parallel with the early verse in, ver the early verse in chapter 6 I noted where instead of saying receive us, it says open your hearts to us. He said if the Apostle Paul is commending this kind of relationship between me and my fellow church members in a church, and he says, and we have committed to live and to die with them, how would I ever know when it is I should leave a church? Now, I'm not going to give you my answer because I don't think, frankly, it was a very good answer. I simply want to settle for a minute on his question and really the assumption of his question. Because the Apostle Paul did not die in Corinth. You know that. He didn't die there. What that phrase is meant to reflect was his decommitment to those people. That the open-heartedness leads, I am proposing, to an endurance in ministry. Or if I can put it in the reverse, it's very hard to last long-term in ministry if you are not open-hearted. And I can just tell you why because I've lived in this, and that is it feels very artificial. We say in the church we are encouraging people to develop a close relationship with their God, right? And then in 1 John, the apostle says, how do we know if you love God? You can say you love God, but do you love your brother? It is much harder to love the brother whom you can see than the God whom you cannot. Why is that? Because we can say we love God, but when I'm looking at a brother that's difficult to deal with, and I'm spending years in a congregation knowing the warts and the difficulties, especially if it's a congregation, something like the one in Corinth, in order for that ministry to flourish long-term, the people have to know that you're committed to an open-heartedness that endures. This is not something that lasts just a moment or two or just until it's difficult. This is a posture for ministry that defines our time with the people of God. He saw these people in Corinth, not just people that he was going to spend some time with until it was easier to move somewhere else. He meant to communicate to them, we are in this church together to do the work of Christ. So here's my simple question for you. After commending to you an open-hearted ministry, just two questions. Are you open-hearted? Are you open-hearted? The second question is, do you desire for that to be true? Do you pursue that? 
Is that what you would want long-term for your ministry? So that if someone were to come to you after 20-some years of ministry, and you were to say to them, could you just give me a reflection on what sort of ministry I have done in this church? You would be thrilled if they would have somewhere on that list that you were open-hearted with them. A few years ago, I was traveling and I worshipped on a Sunday morning with a congregation in a borough. Actually, it was part of a borough in New York City. It has this rather fascinating description as Hell's Kitchen. Don't know if any of you are aware of this area. This is a small neighborhood in New York City known primarily for its open arms to the LGBTQ plus community. And I'm sure at this small church that maybe had 100 or so members there this morning, I don't know if they were members, there were people at worship, that there were people who were struggling with their sexuality. And this is also a confessionally reformed church. I don't know what your experience is within the church, but I would say at least it would be a general truism that generally reformed churches tend to attract people who are already reformed and the difficult people are not as easily welcomed. And so it fascinated me to watch this congregation of confessionally reformed people, very committed to the truth of God's word, welcome the people who came in that door that morning. As one who loves Christ, but also loves people, I was interested to see how they would receive people who obviously were not cut from the same mold. And what I discovered is it was a church where people seemed to genuinely like being there. What a strange thing to say, as though that would matter. But it was true. They came in that door like your children greet your grandparents that they haven't seen in a whole year. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Welcome. Can I give you a hug? Is this your first time here? There's where you need to go for that. Here's over here. Here's what's going to happen in the service. We're so glad you're here. And it seemed genuine. It didn't matter if he was someone who was there for the first time. I didn't know. Or someone who had been there for a long time. They were smiling, looking each other in the eye, asking thoughtful questions, responding to each other, listening to what their answer was. And then as the service proceeded, they were engaged in the preaching and teaching in a way that was not common in most Reformed churches, and that's fine, but they were audibly responding, nodding in approval, following along carefully. Wasn't necessarily my comfort zone, but I would simply say they wanted to be engaged. Or if I can just put it differently, to use the language that I've been using this morning, they seemed to have genuinely open hearts. They did. Does that sound appealing to you, my friend? Is that your desire if the Lord calls you to pastoral ministry? And even more fundamentally, here's the question, is that what God desires for the church? Let me pray with you. Holy Father, as we have considered your word, I would pray that your spirit, as we have asked when we began this service, would be the one who has led us into truth. Anything that is not true, that is unhelpful, that does not lead us to know and to follow Christ, would you remove it from our minds and replace it with that which is pleasing to the God of the universe and to the purpose that you have in this world, that many would come to know and believe in Jesus Christ. 
I pray for each person who is here. I pray, Lord, for your spirit's work in each one of our hearts. You know the way in which your word now intersects our lives and our convictions. In whatever way you choose to use, we give you the glory, Lord, because you are God and God alone, and we are your temple, the place of your residence. And so we rejoice in this time, thankful for your word and your spirit. It is in Christ that we pray. Amen.